The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Resolutions in a study that was done following January 1st, 2014, and subsequently uh, it was it was looking back at 2013, and the statistics then would suggest that more than half of you will make some sort of re- resolution uh, in 2015, most of the time around self-improvement. The top five resolutions uh, of 2000, it was actually 2013, and then 2014 is when the study was published. First one, of course, is, of course, is to lose weight. Okay, that's a, that's a big one. 38% of all resolutions of, or of all people that make resolutions have some sort of losing weight component. Get organized. That would probably be something that I would be more likely drawn to. Uh, save more, spend less, enjoy life to the fullest. What does that even mean? Probably means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And then number five uh, sounds a lot like number one uh, to me. Uh, staying fit and healthy. It's kind of, isn't that the corollary of losing weight? You know, what's the chicken and the egg factor there? Other ones that were on the board, just in case you were wondering, seven, quit smoking. And nine, fall in love. Fall in love. And yeah, I found myself going, is that something you resolve to do? You know, I mean, doesn't, doesn't there have to be somebody else that resolves the same thing? And a friend of mine uh, alerted me that that's just code for like updating your online dating profile. So I don't know. I'll let you uh, figure that out. No, so uh, perhaps you have, re- rev- have resolutions. Odds are you have at least one. There's about 40% of you, the statistics say, that would have uh, multiple resolutions. And the bad news is this, that by the end of this week, more than a quarter of you will have failed to deliver on those resolutions. Okay, it gets even worse if we look to the end of the month. By that time, less than half of you will still be going. And by the end of the year, uh, by, by December 31st, 2013, little more than 7% had reported success throughout the year on their New Year's resolutions. Statistically, that's a 93% fail rate. Okay, which leaves us in a place of going, why would you even start? Why even start something like a New Year's resolution? Because failure seems inevitable. As we start a new series this quarter, it comes out of conversations that I have had with scores of students that as we talk about the things going on in their lives, whether it be at home or school, decisions around career, relationships, that there are students, many of whom are in this room, students who honestly I'm inspired by, that are a slave to the fear of failure. And so as I continue to hear these stories, we wanted to, to talk about what this might look like. What, why do, why are, are we a slave to this fear of failure? Even though so many of us, I believe, would embrace that failure is part of the process in creating success, 
so many of, ourselves, of, of us find ourselves paralyzed as we seek to do something new. I know that in my own life, I am almost, the, the, the failure has almost a mysterious power over me. It works out, it works its way out uh, like this. Um, that if I tell people I'm going to do something, if I try something and don't succeed, then people will know that I'm a fill in the blank with my worst fear, that I'm weak, that I'm incompetent, that I'm stupid. Any number of things fill in that blank with your worst nightmare. If I do something new, I try it and don't succeed, then everybody will know I'm blank. We get paralyzed by this fear, this fear of failure. Well, this quarter, we want to look at really an anti-hero of the Bible. Somebody who, as I have read through the book of Jonah, one of the things that's compelling is that Jonah pretty much fails at everything that he tries to do. Everything that he has it in mind to do, he fails at miserably. And so my hope is this, that over the next month, as we journey through this Old Testament book, that somehow we might get to know God through these words, through this book, in a way that we might not be a slave to the fear of failure. That in ways that we might often find ourselves paralyzed to go new, do new things, to enter into new relationships, uh, to, to maybe do things that are, are at the desires of our heart, but somehow we can't take the step to go because of this fear of failure, that we might break that down a little bit. That we might become people that step out and take risks because we know the God revealed in Jesus Christ just a little bit more because we've read this book. Let's make, let's make failure not so scary uh, as we get to know God a little bit more. Let me pray for us as we get started in this series. God, help us. We, we don't want to be paralyzed. Uh, for those that have made resolutions in this room, I want to pray that, that, um, that you would help them succeed and that you might even add an element of, of risk, that you might even exaggerate some of these resolutions, but that in so doing, you might meet us so that we might not be as scared of the failure that almost seems absolutely inevitable. So help us out as we come to your, your word tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Okay, here we go. You ready for this? Jonah. Okay, Jonah is one of the minor prophets. You can find Jonah in the Old Testament between the books of Obadiah and Micah. And most prophetic books in the Old Testament focus on the, the proclamation, the teachings, the words of a particular prophet. Well, Jonah is, is distinctly different in that it is really the biography. It tells the story of this particular prophet. And uh, in so doing, it's a pretty dynamic, uh, mysterious story uh, that ultimately it's telling us, while it's telling us, it's giving this biography of Jonah, it's telling us more about uh, this one that the scripture calls the Lord. 
uh, Yahweh, God. And it's a God that we believe is revealed in Jesus. All right, let's get started here. So this is Jonah, the first chapter, and we're, tonight we're going to read through that, that entire first chapter. It says this, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed towards Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. All right. What do we have going here? Okay. In most prophetic books, perhaps some of you might be familiar with the, the book of Jeremiah. The Lord comes to, to Jeremiah and says, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Now, often what a prophet will protest and say, oh no, in the case of Jeremiah, I can't do, I can't do that. I think you might have the wrong guy. I'm only a boy. Well, in this case, in the story that we're given here, Jonah doesn't even protest. He doesn't even start an argument. It just says that he went the other direction. Okay, to, to give you an idea of where this is set, uh, Jonah is right between Joppa and Nineveh there on the right-hand side of the, sc- of the screen. And instead of going north to Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh would be a symbol of everything that, that the people of God would have opposed, would have opposed, everything that would have violated. It was known as a, as a city of terror and of, of violence. And so it's a bit understandable that Jonah would not want to go to Nineveh and instead says, next, one ticket to Tarshish, please. This would be like if this book were called Ryan, it would be as if the, the Lord came to the, to the prophet Ryan and said, I want you to go forth unto Pullman, that wicked city, and speak against it, you know. And I'd be like, uh, off to SeaTac, one ticket to Maui, please, okay? It's the same idea here. That, that instead of going toward the thing that the Lord would have Jonah go to, um, Tarshish represents this, this, this checkout, this, this, as the scripture says, this fleeing from. Okay, let's continue. Verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to or prayed to his God small g. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went uh, to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Okay, this is a key point that I I want you to notice because we're going to come back to it. Notice that that all of these sailors who would have been pagans, not necessarily believing in the same God that Jonah believes in, they start praying to their gods. There was a, a phrase in, in uh, the ancient world of that time, about four or 500 BC, that said, he who does not pray does not sail. Okay, the implication being, if you're gonna sail, you better learn how to pray. Well, all these guys are praying and notice that Jonah as the prophet of the Lord, Yahweh doesn't even start to pray. Doesn't even start to pray, even though these other men are. It continues in verse seven. 
Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, a confession right there, but it sure doesn't look like Jonah believes it much, does he? This terrified them, the sailors, and they asked, what have you done? Now they already knew that he was running away from the Lord because Jonah had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make this sea calm down for us? Well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault and this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Isn't that interesting that... Jonah doesn't preach them about who God is, but they throw him overboard and all of a sudden these guys are worshiping the Lord. Interesting. Now here's the big cliffhanger that's gonna keep you coming back next week. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, one reflection on this last section. Um, Jonah does not participate really in even trying to find a solution. And as much as there's a lot of me that wants to make light of the fact that essentially what Jonah says is, kill me, throw me overboard. Um, He even fails at that because when they do it, we get this cliffhanger that he ends up in the belly of a fish and the implication is that he's not dead in that belly of the fish. And notice also that these men, these pagans, and and this is kind of a sidebar on what we're looking at tonight, are are good, they're good men. They pray. Um, They want to know what's going on. Their interest is in survival. They're rowing to try and get back to the shore so that they might save themselves, that they might save Jonah. They they ask for the Lord's forgiveness in killing somebody with that that's innocent. They're actually men of peace. And for those that would have been hearing this in its original context, the original Hebrews that would have been listening to this, they would have noticed, wow, these pagans are teaching us something about how to behave. Okay, let this be a little bit of a lesson for us that even those who aren't Christian per se can teach us a little bit about what it means to have compassion and what it means to pray. Because Jonah, the person of God, was doing none of those things. You see, the people that would have heard these words in the fourth century uh, before Christ, what they would have heard in chapter one is a warning. They would have seen and, and observed this story of Jonah and they would have understood this to be a great warning. Now, it's fair for us to look at this story 
and look at what Jonah was asked to do. Go to this great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Okay, to understand what Jonah was being asked to do, it would be a little bit like this. It would be a little bit like a, a Jewish man being asked to go to Germany right after the end of World War II. Not a fun task. So on the one hand, it's easy for us to see, to, to see why Jonah would resist going and doing that. But was there something more? Was he worried that, that he might go there and fail in that task? Was he worried that God would fail him? What was his insecurity? We don't know any of these things. The Bible doesn't tell us. Here's what we do know. Here's the warning that I want us to explore with the, the few moments that we have left tonight. What we do know is that he doesn't even start towards Nineveh. He doesn't even start towards obedience to what God said. He doesn't even start. What do we do with this? He doesn't even start. The waves kicked up. He doesn't start to pray. Even when the pagan sailors are praying. He doesn't even start to try and rescue the boat. He's apathetic, perhaps even defeated or depressed, but he doesn't even start. What do we learn from these warnings? First, we learn, learn, learn this. We are warned about running away. Instead of starting, he runs away. Um, I don't know why I always seem to, when I, when I think about anecdotes for these things, so often it comes back to my college dating life, and here we go again in a story about running away. As somebody who grew up, um, I, I, I don't know. I always, I was one of those guys that was always excited about, you know, the next girl that I might date. Uh, but there was always something kind of terrifying in it for me. Um, and I always found good excuses as to why I might not ask particular girls out. For example, I, in my entire time in college, I never actually dated somebody between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, okay? And it was a lot easier on this thing right here, okay? Now, I use that as an excuse of, <laughs> I mean, I don't really date between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, you know, I, I, I don't want to have to buy gifts and things like that. Where really, that was just a defense of, I don't want to put myself out there. I don't even want to start. Now, again, there's good reason for this. I grew up in a family where divorce has a rich and storied history. To me, all relationships and romantic relationships were, were destined to fail. And yet there was something in learning to start and fail and start and fail that eventually led me into a relationship with Julie Ann Wilson and 12 and a half years and three boys later, what I can tell you is that we started and we have failed so many times to the point that I, I stand in front of you going, honestly, if there is something worth starting, failure is almost inevitable. There's a warning 
in this story of Jonah of what happens when we don't even start. Second, there's a warning about not praying. Isn't there? All these pagans are praying, and yet we see Jonah is not. Oh, that means I'm supposed to wrap it up. We see Jonah is, is not praying. Again, back to my college life. Um, I had a lot of good excuses once again. This is kind of true confessions because earlier when, when Maddie and Alan were up here, you heard about uh, core groups. Well, I went to school here at the University of Washington. I was faithful in attending the inn, uh, especially my junior and senior year, pretty regularly. But I never once signed up for a core group. And why wasn't that the case? Well, on the one hand, I had good excuses. I had to work. Uh, obviously, I had a class load. You know, I was paying my own way through, through school. I was in a fraternity. There was a lot of, of reasons time-wise that it made sense for me to not do it. But there were these, these other things as well. Um, one, in my fraternity, I had a lot of Christian friends. And on the one hand, I was worried that in a core group, they might find out that I'm not quite as spiritually put together as I would have liked for them to believe. For example, praying out loud was a new activity for me at that point. What would they think of me if they had to hear me pray often? And second, and this is, you know, this is the tension that I know that there's probably a lot of you that have experienced this, is that while I, I, there was something in me that did want to grow in my faith, I also kind of didn't want to be seen as too Christian. I didn't want to be one of those religious fanatics that was running around the house, um, you know, clobbering people with the Bible. Okay, and so I never signed up. I didn't even start. In this case, I, I used, I used the, uh, the fact that Jonah didn't start to pray um, is what led me to this. I missed out on the opportunity in that moment to grow in relationship with other believers because I wasn't willing to put myself out there. I wasn't willing to start. But the biggest warning, ironically, and Jonah's biggest failure was his failure to escape from the Lord. The, what he did do was try to check out. Uh, well, after not signing up for a core group and yet being present here week in and week out, I found myself a bit frustrated and, and came into the end of my senior year going, I want to be faithful to God and I, I've got this, this internship that I'm really excited about, but there was something in me that wasn't at peace. I wasn't sure if I was, if I was headed down the path that I should really be going down. And, 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 and again, there was just something in me, even though I had this awesome job with the Seattle Mariners, uh, and as a sports fan, it was kind of the thing I wanted to do at the time. There was something that was making me restless within that. Something that was making everything just a little bit blurry. And one of the things that had caught, uh, captured my attention was this, this two-month summer mission opportunity called Deputation here at the Inn. And it captured my imagination. I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And finally, it, it, almost out of frustration, you know, without with sparing you the details, I said, you know what, I'll go. 
I'll go. And it was only after that happened that I, I had recognized that, that as I was trying to see where God was trying to, to take me and go, no, I've got this internship. And it, it, everything continued to be really cloudy. But it wasn't until I said, okay, I want to go do this thing called deputation, that all of a sudden, it was, if, was as if what was in front of me all of a sudden was at my side. And the whole time, I later realized it was God actually in my face. And what was causing it to be blurry was, was my need to try and push it out of the way and try and get away from the thing, the, the, the ministry, the opportunity that God had in mind for me in that moment, in that season. And it wasn't until there was this, this almost joining in with God, this surrender that said, okay, when all of a sudden things started to get much clearer. Instead of being up in my face, there was this sense that God was at my side. With Jonah, it seemed that as far as he tried to go to get away from God, at every point, he turns around and sees that God is right there the whole time. He doesn't pray. God shows up. He's disobedient. God shows up. He tells the sailors, kill me. God shows up. He's rescued. My hope for us is that we would be a community that can go and risk, that cannot be scared of failure, knowing that one of the promises that Jesus makes to us is that there is nothing, including your own fear, that can separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And so it gives us the opportunity to go and do new things, to take big risks, knowing that God is right there. What we get, the gift that Jonah gives us in Jonah's failure is seeing that God is right there the whole time. And in fact, the gift that we're given is that it is in his failure that God's presence becomes really, really evident and clear to us. So much so that I stand in front of you and say that there is, there is really little way for you to grow in your faith in Jesus without embracing the reality that you will fail. You will fail at some point. But the promise of that same God is that I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, let us not be a slave to the fear of failure. Let us set big goals. Let us take big risks and allow God to rescue and redeem and restore us every step of the way. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your presence with us and that your promises are true. Uh, help us overcome this fear of failure. Help us to be honest with ourselves about the things that stop us, that keep us from even starting, uh, that we uh, might know you and that we might serve others just a little bit better. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.